Welcome everybody. It's Watch Me Pod again. Uh, the pod about game changers in punk, emo, and hardcore. Uh, bringing it to you 101 style on all things that we see fit to talk about that we haven't seen talked about exhaustively. I am your host, Jim. I'm Hugo. Today, um, we are talking about Drive Through Records, the iconic label that uh, had a completely outsized impact on the landscape of what we know as pop punk, particularly the early 2000s uh, variety of that, um, and also that era of emo. Before we get into it, as per usual, want to hit you with some current events and sort of what we've been listening to. Uh, from my from my side of the aisle, I've, I've been relatively lean. I've been doing like a little bit of traveling and uh, sort of un, been a little bit more unplugged over the last couple of weeks from the going to gigs thing. I played one gig, super awesome DIY gig in Toledo a couple of weeks ago with a bunch of heavy bands. I uh, want to give a real quick shout out to Backbiter, Meth Stain, Those Hounds from Michigan, uh, and Humid was a killer bill, all um, Ohio and Michigan stuff, all varying degrees of heavy. Those hounds were a first for me and they're doing like a really, like from what I, from where I sit and the way that I talk to them about it, they're like doing a really kind of faithful um, Long Island post hardcore thing, but sort of in the more arty side of things. Like they're like a big, they're they're sort of big inspirations that we talked about were like Glassjaw and Frodus. So it was super cool. They were kind of the token melodic band everything else is really heavy. Um, keep those bands on your radar. A big thing that I'm going to try to do continuously on this pod is elevate, <laughs> elevate bands from this part of the country uh, that you might not be hearing about otherwise. So uh, in terms of live stuff, that's where I've been at. Not much else. Um, sort of in a lull. I feel like things are going to start picking back up again in terms of live music here shortly. Um, <sighs> Honestly, I haven't been bumping a whole lot of new stuff that we haven't already been talking about. There's a, there's a lot of stuff coming down the pipe. We've already talked about a lot of the bangers that I have been hitting over the course of the last six weeks or so. The big thing, the big sort of news newsflash item for me is that Gridiron finally clicked for me. So that's cool. Because that was a record that for several months now, which explains why I'm like very late to the party on it. I've been trying, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't clicking for me. And I ended up, I don't know if it's the fact that I listened to it uh, when I was in New York City this past week. And there's, there, there is something, even though they're a PA hardcore band in Michigan, there's something like quintessentially New York about the way that the music sounds and hits either way better late than never i can see why everybody has this at the tippy top of their album of the year lists it's a great fucking record i think what what it took for me is recognizing that like carl is a hip-hop dude and like this is fucking rap core and once i like fully internalized it as rap core i was like yep yep this <laughs> why why wouldn't i like this i love limp biscuit i fucking and like I think it's cool as fuck that hardcore has gotten so long tailed and so many niches exist that there are like not only one, but multiple bands doing the whole like Scarhead, Crown of Thorns, E-Town thing. So 
cool to finally be on that train. Um, that's sort of it for me in terms of current events. Uh, like I said, a little bit of a lull, just focused on, you know, enjoying the summer and uh, taking care of my brain. Hugo, what about you? Uh, kind of continuing from our last episode, I've just been on the, the emo train. I went to a like really long, long tour that kind of like the emo tour of the summer with Michael Sarah Palin, Weatherday, and Oolong. And probably the weirdest show, they booked, this is the first time any of them have been to Chicago, and they booked Metro as where they were, yeah. Whoa. Yo, yo. Um, and I was I was worried going into the show. I was like, I hope people show up because that is a big, big move. It's a swing. I don't even know if they were aware because they've been doing like pretty much like DIY tour kind of stuff, like like all little rooms. Like I think they played X-Ray Arcade the next day. So you have an idea of where they're playing. I think I thought like it would have made sense at Bee Kitchen, but nonetheless, it was cool to go to a show at the Metro. And there was like maybe like maybe like 200 or so people there. Like still, it felt not packed because it was Metro and Metro is is like the premier venue in Chicago. Yeah. For like not for people who aren't from here, not Galoosh sold out two nights at the Metro. Yeah. So that's the kind of size band that that plays there. Like that's where Super Chunk plays. Yeah. Metro, just just for a little more context, like again, if you haven't been there, like it is it is a venue that is it is actually not terribly big. Um, I don't know exactly what the cap on it is, but uh, it feels very big because it's multi-tiered and has a, and has like a really majestic feel to it. And it's a very sort of tall venue, if that makes sense. Uh, the moral of the story is that it's sort of double-edged and that it can be very easy to like make a show that is only marginally lit seem very lit there. But if a show is hurt, it's going to look really fucking hurt. So it's very cool that that the show you went to popped off. Yeah, Avery Springer opened it. It was my first time seeing seeing her. It was the last time she used the Elton John Cena moncure that she started with back in the day. Uh, real, really fun. People seemed pretty receptive, which is always, you never know when it's an acoustic opener. Next was Oolong, who I've, who I've become a fan of in recent days definitely on that emo revival revival thing i i talk about and they people seem to there was a good amount of people that seemed to be there for them i swear i saw probably the most wholesome thing was what looked like a mother and their and her children they looked like they were 12 there was like a little push there was like a little push pit going on somebody had like an alien inflatable that they were they were tossing around like very like very very wholesome this is you can tell for them this is like their first big tour it's like um it's not normal for bands to tour for a month and a half which is essentially what that what they're doing uh i was day was up next so I was very interested to see what was going to happen since it's primarily like a solo project. Um, 
and people seem to go off for it. Uh, it just seemed like people, the crowd was young enough where it didn't matter what they were going to hear. They, they just wanted to have a good time and people are singing along to the Weather Day songs. And it, it actually is, it's a, lot, it's a lot more like fun live than I think it comes across, across on record. Like it, it is like kind of like party with your friends and push people around. Um, I unfortunately left before Michael Sarah Palin played just because it's near where the Chicago Cubs play. And I wanted to beat some traffic because getting on the train afterwards is a little bit of a task. Getting on the train with a bunch of fucking Cubs fans afterwards? No, no, miss, um, miss me with that. You're completely in the right. Yeah, um, and I've I've also been listening to a good amount of emo band that would have been on our list, on, on my list for last episode, Ben Quad, put out a record called I'm Scared That's All There Is. Very quickly has jumped up in terms of most impressive emo records not made i don't know if it's my album of the year in emo but i think it definitely appeals to a lot of a lot of different emo listeners it it has the twinkly emo thing going on that i talk about a lot but it's but it doesn't seem like it's the point the point isn't to write this intricate riff and just these kind of bridges that lead to nowhere which is what i think the Midwest emo kind of style while it got played out is that it's it seems like this the song is it being serviced the, it's just the guitarist kind of showing off and these are really really strong like pop songs there's a really strong pop sensibility here because um, when you when you do the the it's so I'm really impressed with the with Ben Quad as well because when you actually do the twinkly thing and it's married in a in a correct way with the with you know pop sensibility it can be so powerful right like totally. it can be so additive as opposed to subtractive yeah um moving on new you candy um this is like if if you like super drag and like late 90s like power pop that like kind of had a moment on the radio post like the grunge boom i'd rec i'd recommend this it's um there's even hints of like Jawbreaker in there. It's like a 12 minute EP. Been really into that. And kind of on that same power pop lane, Camp Trash, The Long Way, The Slow Way. This one's this one's been hyped up for, for a while. If you're on my corner of the internet, this might've been the most anticipated thing in like the emo adjacent circles. I know they don't identify as an emo band, but they're on Count Your Lucky Stars. So it's kind of, unavoidable similar to new you if you just like if you like the modern like kind of power pop resurgence we're kind of we're kind of seeing like loud chunky guitars this is the kind of music you play while you're driving down the interstate um when it's 90 degrees and and you're just trying to have a good time uh and last this is i just found this one out as we're recording today um courtesy of no echo feels like heaven with extended play um definitely like hardcore dudes doing 90s emo there's touches of turning point in there there's one track that kind of reminds me of anxious like uh 2019 uh really 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 impressive i definitely this is definitely under the radar compared to everything else but 
I would give this a strong recommend if you if you like um, yeah I don't know this is just if you like 90s emo stuff you're gonna uh, I'm well, I'm seeing they're, they're they're a Swedish band yeah yeah okay, fuck yeah that rule um, one of the dudes is in the band Speedway yep which just put something on Revelation Records um, yeah that's that's all for me it's been yeah. A big emo week for me. That's that's fantastic. I'm glad that somebody's keeping keeping the dream alive because it, it certainly isn't me. Although I did do like I did do one of the probably the single most NYHC thing I've ever done uh, this past week was I went to a Mets game. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, that that was really really fun to to have that experience. I felt like I was gonna like walk outside and sick of it all was gonna be playing in the parking lot. So. It's good, good stuff. Um, cool. Well, uh, without further ado, now that the now that the the current events highlight reels out of the way, we're gonna go ahead and get into the fifth of the episode here, which is talking about drive through records. Um, give a little context. Drive through started in 1996 in the Los Angeles area. Uh, started by uh, brother and sister Richard and Stephanie Reynas. Um, pretty instrumental label in, in popularizing the pop punk and emo sound of the early 2000s. Uh, pretty early on got into a distro deal with MCA and Universal, um, which then dissolved and folded into Geffen in 2003. Um, this gave MCA and Geffen license to sign any band of their choosing from drive throughs roster. I think that all these things kind of proved pivotal uh, in what the sort of impact and legacy of the label label would wind up being. Uh, when this universal deal ended, <laughs> drive through signed a contract with indie label Sanctuary and started a new roster, which included um, the really impactful band Hello Goodbye. Uh, and also I think was a pretty pivotal moment for the label sound-wise. Um, Sanctuary wasn't in a great financial place and they sold their assets to Universal pretty quickly. Um, and drive Through sort of ended up getting stuck between a rock and a hard place. They got stuck with Universal, the K UMG, the catalog division of Universal. Uh, this all leads up to them putting out their last release in 2008, after which... Um, Richard and Stephanie decided to go into artist management and put the label on pause. Um, the label ended up selling over 7 million CDs, um, which I think at the time, you know, pretty undeniable impact in terms of market penetration and sort of like putting yourself out there and being ubiquitous in an era when, you know, flooding the market with physical units was one of the most powerful things a, a label could do. And I do think that with some really notable exceptions and maybe just sort of in combination with the, you know, the artistic talent and star power of these specific bands, it was this level of market penetration via physical units. Make all the jokes you want about that. Uh, <laughs> rather than like any particular level of excellence overall that made the label an impactful household name. Um, I just want to cut in there. The yeah. only... The only like 
thing I'd push back on is that as we'll get into it, they really honed in on the sounds in particular of what was happening at the time. I think it was that, like you said, and that major labels were kind of smelling the money with like yeah. pop punk and emo around this time. And they, I think as we'll talk about with, they just happened to find a couple of the bands that would become huge. But I think the like really clean, like guitar properly distorted nasally pop punk vocal thing, like they really honed in on a thing and kind of started chasing the money in a way that victory did as well, I'd say. Yeah, that very much in that's, yeah, that's to do nothing to minimize like this label's business savvy and vision. Like there was a bonanza happening and this and drive-through was like out at the very front of it. So um, Hugo, what was, what was your sort of on, on-ramp relationship with, with drive-through? What was kind of your first, uh, first taste of it? Okay, this is finally the episode where I get to pinpoint exactly when I started listening to emo. It was the the like huge year of 2005 of From Under the Court Tree Panic the Disco at the Disco and stuff. And I was watching Fuse a lot. And a really early band um, was early November for me. And they're the first show I ever went to was Warped Tour 2006. And I saw the first band I ever saw play live was early November with um, when they played Hair during that tour. And The Room's Too Cold, their 2003 record was very early for me. And that's when I first heard of Drive Through. I think it might've come with the Drive Through sampler. And then around that same time, I got I got into Hello Goodbye via pure volume. <laughs> Throw, throwback to another time. Classic. Uh, classic. Uh, like, I wasn't even a MySpace kid at that point. That's like how I was getting free music. Was I was just on pure volume downloading the couple free songs you could get. So Damn. I really came in at the end of drive through because yeah. I, was, I was in middle school. I graduated uh, like middle school in 2008 yep. um so like middle school to me it was like at 2005 or 6 in 2008 so I was like near this tail end and like I heard newfound glory and some of these other stuff through osmosis I for, I heard cobra starship before midtown so I'd say because I started getting into this stuff like 2004 and 5 I was kind of like smack dab in the middle near or near the end this this peak era is so short for them, I feel like, even though it's five or six years, it feels so much more compact compared to like some of these other labels we've talked about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Similar to me, like sort of, or different than me rather, I, I was in middle school from 2000 to 2003. And so I think that I caught like a completely different era of drive-through. I sort of caught the like, um, as we'll talk about, you know, more, uh, I sort of caught the like big Dickies shorts, chunky skate shoes era of the label, uh, which, you know, was, was part of a bigger cultural movement, but I really think got epitomized by, by drive through, um, my first, if, if memory serves my first, uh, the very first thing that I ever heard from the label was, 
in 2002, I, w- I was watching the X Games and there was like a cut scene, little highlight reel, like cutting to commercial and My Friends Over You by Newfound Glory played. Um, and I heard it and I was like, well, this is interesting. Better go down this rabbit hole. And I, I, I think shortly thereafter went and bought um, Sticks and Stones, which, you know, became, if you know me, pretty big, uh, pretty big part of my identity. And then the following summer, I like, I think that the skate park that I frequented had a drive-through sampler um, that had like a movie life. It had, you know, all the hits, but I think specifically the thing that I uh, really uh, glommed onto was movie life because it had a hand grenade on it. And it also had uh, become what you hate by Midtown. And those were the kind of the two things that jumped out for me from that. And I went down that those rabbit holes respectively and, you know, push came to shove drive through became a pretty big part of my, my musical identity and has kind of been a pretty steadfast part of my personality for the last 20 years. So um, anything else from you on the autobiography tip before we, we jump, jump into the discography here? No, not really. Um, this is just a weird listen because as I said in pre-pro nostalgia lies and I don't know how I feel about all yeah that's 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 gonna be the big uh a big theme here because i think that this is this is the first label deep dive that we've done where like maybe 50 percent, or maybe even a hair more than 50 percent of the stuff they just didn't age well at all um and nostalgia really is you know a lion sack of shit sometimes about these types of things so um We'll start off uh, in 1998 with Less Than Jake, Hello Rockview. I don't know enough about Less Than Jake to know what this, like where this album sits in, you know, how, how revered it is in their discography. I do know that this is the definitely that all my friends are metalheads from this album is the first uh, Less Than Jake song I ever heard. I want to say it was probably the first like third wave ska song I ever heard because of course of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4. Um, I'm making myself a liar already because I definitely heard Superman by Goldfinger in the first <laughs> Tony Hawk game, <laughs> but this is definitely the first Lesson Jake song I heard. Um, the song's undeniably a catchy bop uh, for nostalgia reasons. And since I don't have like a deep uh, knowledge of less than Jake and never had a really big relationship with the band this is probably my go-to less than jake song just i think it's really fun um and like any like any of those songs that were in those tony hawk games it just gets drilled into your fucking psyche because like you you're hearing all those songs like on repeat for hours on end right um how do how do you how do you feel about yeah this is also funny we should mention we we did cover less than jake in the no idea we episode. sure did. So this is the first time this has happened. It's the first time we've gotten a double double down. And this is much more in like what I would call the canonical. Like when we talk about Less Than Jake, this is definitely more of the start of like that classic era where the other stuff was more stuff from splits. I think I've said it before. I like I like Less Than Jake. This is cool. It's interesting because when you think of drive through this early period isn't what you think of when they're 
kind of picking up on ska like the ska tangent that's kind of happening in the third wave i don't even this is so early in their catalog and for a label that doesn't have that many records only like 80 or so it's interesting that this is where they start and they didn't really hit on like what would become the defined sound of a drive-through like right away yeah it took a took a little bit of iteration um next we go over to alistair dead ends and girlfriends um i'd never listened i full disclosure i'd never listened to this record um my first impression is that i i actually like that as as we'll talk about i actually kind of like the later alistair material oh I was, boy I was, I was not i was i said kind of i was not ready for how goofy and amateurish like that. i straight up can't believe that this album got released on a label i think that that is so completely symptomatic of how like media outfits in the 90s in general this was like a macro trend where like companies didn't really care they were just kind of they wanted to just throw lunch meat at the wall and see what stuck it was a sort of like a really brute force strategy and this definitely <laughs> seems like a that there was a small version of that happening here because like there's no you can't fucking tell me that any aspect of this album like actually belongs on a, on a label like you can't tell me that the bar was that low in 19 yeah you can't tell me that i'm mostly surprised that this is the same band to be honest yeah like i didn't know that alistair had anything else besides somewhere on fullerton <laughs> if i'm being yeah. if i'm being honest like and i really think of this the less than jake this and rx bandits like that stuff together because it's it's that they're coming in succession it's all like part of this like i said before like part of this scout wave that's really happening and i feel like is about to crest like as this stuff is coming out and it's the the boom of that starting to get stale and it's gonna the trend's gonna start to move towards more of the emo emo stuff that's um that would like to find the third wave if you will yeah Speaking of RX Bandits, they put out an album in 1999 called Halfway Between Here and There. Um, look, I'm going to just get this out of the way. I hate this fucking band. They're, <laughs> oh my God. They're, they're my least favorite. They're, they're literally my least favorite band of all time. Um, and I, I don't care what kind of like watch list that puts me on. I don't care like how canceled I am for saying that. Like, I have very. Why would you get canceled? For I don't know. I don't fucking know what weird. I don't know what weird ska retcons the ska retcon community has been doing. All I know is that this band is for me the musical embodiment of a dude who um, smokes a lot of weed and self describes as chill, and then screams in a girl's face when she won't go home with him. Like that's like this is the music. This is the musical equivalent of. Uh, a guy who punishes you about conspiracy theories for an hour and a half uh, at a party and then asks you for a cigarette. Like uh, it's just giving that to me. And that might be a frame of reference problem. Sure. But like, I just, there's nothing about this that I can stand and I don't have the capacity to say anything charitable about this band. So like, we'll just get that out of the way. 
that's that's the most heated I've heard. You you're not much of a of a shit talker on Dan. Yeah, it's just most of the most most stuff I just don't really find like abhorrent enough. Like most stuff to me is just mid, right? Like it actually says a lot about our expandits that they're like unmid enough to elicit this kind of reaction to me because like most stuff that I don't care for, I just like don't even bother like holding rent rented space in my head for but rx bandits is an elite category of uh of bands that anytime i hear their music it just elicits this sort of visceral visceral reaction from me so that's that's where it is yeah like i don't even feel that strongly about rx bandits it's why i think of all of these ska like the ska period together it's more like yeah that's I, that's some ska if I've ever heard it to me. There, yeah. There's there's like nothing that it doesn't elicit like any any response. It's more like I keep saying, I keep repeating myself, like, oh, that's interesting that this is where where it starts for for yeah. the label. And I feel like I'm just gonna keep repeating myself because that's all I could really say about about this stuff. Like I'm not I can't taste the the I can't do the tasting notes of ska because I, I like <laughs> I, I like ska, but I can't yeah. say, oh, this is um this is a nice upstroke here. Um, yeah, right. I I also just I, one thing just aesthetically, I feel like RX Bandits, um, like very are, are like very audaciously trying to be sublime when only sublime can be sublime. Like sublime yeah. is a fantastic band. Um, regardless of how much their music doesn't always aesthetically agree with me, like Sublime is like objectively fantastic. And I'm super glad that like they got retconned to whatever degree they did over the last decade to like where people kind of universally agree that Sublime is good. But this is like a this is like bargain rate Sublime. And yeah, to be honest, I thought I thought our expandus was a pop punk band. I think I was getting them and MXPX mixed yeah. up. That me, me too, which I think is why when I rediscovered our expandits a few years ago, like after not really ever having given them the time of day, I was like just appalled by what I heard because I was yeah. expecting it to be like MXPX style stuff, which is like, yeah, say what you will about it, it's pretty innocuous. Um, totally. Uh, On to some actual pop punk, um, where I think the, you know, the, um, giant dickies shorts and chunky skate shoes and high socks energy really starts to kick in for the label phoenix tx band that was called river phoenix and for legal reasons had to change their name uh came out they were they were one of the the og dtr bands in fact they, in fact they might have been like patient zero on the label um regardless their self-titled comes out in 1999 and i first heard song off of this in the very end of 2001 in the Dave Mira freestyle BMX2 soundtrack, All My Fault. Um, so that song and the sort of this record in general for me has kind of mad nostalgia value. However, I hadn't listened to it in as many years. And this is the first in a series of uh, sort of unfortunate events here where the, the theme is going to hold that nostalgia does lie because this is not, this does not hold up. <laughs> it doesn't, this doesn't hold up the way that I thought it would. Uh, it just, it doesn't like, like there's a good and a bad way to sound 
like amateurish, right? Because like if you think about '90s emo, there's a certain amount of like looseness to it that is just part of the genre, right? Like if you listen to like LA US songs or like Sunny Real Sunny Day Real Estate Diary or even Nothing Feels Good, like there is a certain amount of like the guitars are all always flirting with out of tune and the singer's always close to off key. And like, there's a certain amount of that that's charming, but the way that it gets delivered um, in this sort of, in this era of, you know, mall pop punk doesn't, it doesn't feel like it actually has any artistic validity behind it. It just feels amateurish and lazy. And I think part of that is in hindsight, because um, all these bands on this label proved in a couple of years that they could do like a really polished thing. So I think that that sort of subsumes what happened prior to it. And like, just, just this sound doesn't hold up at all. I don't think like, I think also Phoenix TX feels like it's guilty or is subject to the copy of a copy kind of thing yes i think they i was reading and they got levied i think fairly like oh they sound like blink and i think this is more indicative of a post anima world where that was like the perfect version of this really polished pop punk and this is just this is just fine there is nothing that is particularly remarkable of it, but about it, but it's, but it is what, what happens when, I don't know, it's just like a couple of years down the line and this is the kind of pop punk you get. There's, there's like no, the thing I like this to me distinguishes like good and bad pop punk is like that character thing. It's the same thing that distinguishes a hardcore band or it's the vocalist, like what, like, like what are you bringing outside of those tropes that exist and like where can i see the personality it's the same thing that makes a that's like a voice when you think about a writer's voice like what what is it that you're bringing that's different that all that than what's already existed and to me there's there's like nothing and even even like even the music video for the like most popular song is just such over the time. I think this is one that well, I can understand why you would like it when it came out, but I think it's one that just stays trapped yeah. during, in, its, in its era. And there's probably a million other bands like, like this. And it's, it's kind of funny that this is like one of the first bands that this, that, that goes to MC that goes to MCA and gets the major major label yeah. treatment. But I think it, it it is interesting that this comes in '99 after after Anima came out because I think that context makes a lot of sense to me. That yeah, it's like specifically the time when major labels maybe start seeing there might be money in this particular kind of punk. Yeah, I think Anima shifted the vibe so hard that like everybody just kind of like got shaken out of their seats and was like okay we need to sh chase that shiny object and eventually bands figured out and blink themselves included figured out how to follow that record up gracefully um but it took a second right and like the first ever, the first attempt you you take at, at like making something in a mold it isn't gonna always come out well
right? You to use that analogy. And this is how it comes to me, because obviously this music was made before that was happening. But as I am taking it in, it's that context of like the time it came out is like inextricable for me, yeah. even if there was no intentions to do that. And it was just some dudes making music. But like 20 years later, it just feels like so of the time and just like it like it, I have the same responses I have with a lot of the stuff. It sounds just fine. Yeah. Serviceable, but in the context of things that would happen down the line, certainly not top tier. Um, Midtown put out an EP in 1999 that I think that is, it, it's not representative of what Midtown ended up sounding like, much like a lot of the EPs that we see on this label. Like, Which is it, interesting. It's just an unwashed version of like what they would go on to do the next year like it's just a it's a sort of like they're it's very clear that they're kind of finding their their voice and like getting their chops up and like getting their weight up still and i think you see that process a lot on this label which in, in a way i think is is kind of kind of cool because it's usually the opposite when we're talking about this stuff usually it's yeah. the ep that has all the bangers yeah um now Moving on to, I think, what is kind of the first big, um, first big jumping off point in this label really making its impact. Um, Newfound Glory, self-titled, 2000. Uh, Hugh, I'm going to kick it over to you first. Oh, yeah, good. I mean, this is, this is the Newfound Glory record for me, self-titled, even though I didn't really listen to Newfound Glory aside from their stuff in video games. This was actually... A college, my college roommate was very into Newfound Glory and took me to a show and I was into it. I think more so than any, even Blink shaped pop punk for the next, like, still to this day. I think this is yeah. still, like, like the, the template in terms of, the, like, guitar and rhythm playing in, in particular that you still hear to this day in, in any easy quarter revivalist or anything even 2010s pop punk wouldn't look the same without this um, yeah i think that there are two template bands for pop punk blink and newfound glory i think that any other compared to compared to those bands any other band is trivial yeah like it's and even like the the tropes of my friends over you or something like yeah. that song like that lyric that chorus is just everything about about pop punk. I'm with my bros. Even the music videos too, and and like even it fully like enclosed in amber the arc of hardcore dude the pop punk like thing to to yep. me. Like well, obviously you had bands like Lifetime, but to me to get it to like this point where they're where they're on billboard it's fully like they're in they're invading like pop radio in in a real way um and yeah like this 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 is one of the records that still holds the test of time even with you know the cringy lyrics but like the cringy lyrics are part of the pop punk thing so part of the thing part it. of the experience yeah so it's you kind of kind of got to take it as it is 
and and interesting because this stuff i think they're indicative of what would what would sort of infect email in this era be, because of the because of the label um it would it would be begin to become part and parcel when you talked about emo is also including these tropes yep um listen i'm gonna beat the dead horse here and make a point clear that i like if it hasn't already become abundantly clear what my stance on this is that just like it's the power of hardcore personnel baby like hardcore kids do it better um they're hardcore coming up in the ecosystem playing the genre it just gives you a elevated grasp of songcraft. You're two grades ahead of everybody else. If you come into a genre from hardcore, you just know how to write songs better. And this is like abundantly clear that that's what happened here. This band was such a gamble on so many levels for these fellas. Like Chad Gilbert was king shit of fuck mountain in our in hardcore, and he hadn't even gotten out of high school yet. He was singing in Shy Halud and sang on what is still like to this day lauded as one of the best melodic hardcore records of all time and everybody looked at him like he was crazy when he fucked off from that band to join this band also i think there's a it's a super crazy and charming story in a way that no other story is of how um newfound glory went for it um, and how they sort of forced their own hands to go for it in a way to, that made drive through sign them and, you know, made their whole ascendancy happen. The big takeaway is that everybody was really wishy-washy and essentially Ian had a private meeting with the people at, at drive through. They basically gave him an ultimatum. that's like, you guys need to like go for it and commit to this full time or we're not going to sign you. And so, uh, Ian essentially called a fake meeting with the members of the band and the label execs where they sort of fake. It wasn't that they had delivered that ultimatum to Ian. It's just like they had made it, they had made it clear that like to Ian that that's what it was going to take. So they fake gave that ultimatum to the band in this fake meeting. And that's the entire reason that Newfound Glory happened the way that it did. And I think a, a huge part of why Newfound Glory, you know, became what they became and had the legacy they have is because like Ian is a fucking business genius. Like, and that's, that's not to be, that's not to be like glossed over. So this album was clearly the first kind of big throughput of that. So it's cool. Um, onward, Midtown, Save the World, Lose the Girl. Um, it's not Newfound Glory good. <laughs> Newfound Glory has set the bar, right? Like, um, but a huge improvement from the EP. Songwriting is super leveled up. Whole thing feels more polished. Uh, there is Midtown is funny because like they have a they have such a like mighty mighty boss tones energy to them without actually being a ska band. It's just like something about how like the bouncy and jaunty that the riff writing is, like. There's not actual upstrokes. There's not fucking horns. There's not Scott tropes, but the whole thing has like soul patch kind of Scott energy to it. It's always been like an uncanny thing with me about Midtown. Yeah. I mean, if you want to talk, 
and st- there's the hardcore to pop punk then there's your first band's a ska band and then you start your punk band and sometimes you carry that stuff that stuff with you even if it's by accident i think i put midtown like solidly like b tier like driver i think it it succeeds at like what phoenix tx or bands like that 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 are below them kind of fail like i think the songs are actually there the hooks are memorable i've probably listened to no place feels like home a lot which is like one of just the great i love like uh opening guitar riff to and then everything sort of builds out definitely like beloved band in this catalog like i know a lot of people that that ride for them and i know myself included yeah i know the reunion that they're doing is a big deal right now they're opening for uh my chemical romance and doing a couple new jersey shows so i i just miss them because of the time i didn't even know about midtown until until once again my college roommate just showed me them after i said i liked cobra starship or whatever and so it was so it was a surprise but um yeah like very good band that's like executing like good pop bomb absolutely uh dashboard confessional the legends um swiss army romance uh i think the dashboard is undeniably on the s tier of this label like and it's kind of already obvious with this release like obviously this was their release before they popped over to vagrant right like this but like even with this even with this album i think that they get like a sort of asterisk spot on the rushmore um caraba is just an absolute fucking powerhouse and he's so good at what he does and like it's just kind of obvious already that like they this label is kind of a meritocracy and the bands that like made the impact did it because they were good and that in sort of hand in hand with the power of the label just like helped them make an outsized impact and yeah i I think that this this is a truly excellent record and and dashboard is a truly excellent band and i know that even like people people who fucking despise uh this kind of uh, this kind of music and this label and everything it represents, they put an asterisk by, by, by dashboard because they're fucking fantastic. Like it's just, it's just, it's just pop music. Where, where did you stand with dashboard at the time? Because there was definitely like, obvi- there was obviously like a cult, almost a cultish like devotion to this band that like, I didn't understand understand at the time that they were almost more than just a emo band like they were this band could be your life personified as a band so i always liked dashboard but i was always afraid to admit did i like dashboard because liking dashboard was gay that's that, that's, yeah, that, that's yeah, i shouldn't laugh but that's, that, that's, that's essentially so like where where it was um, I will say that Dashboard played a free show in my hometown at the university's homecoming that all my buddies and I went to, and it was a great time. So, like, uh, that was in, like, 05 when they were, like, peak fucking Dashboard. I don't know how that happened, but it was the talk of the town for six months. Um, Dashboard, 
yeah, no, I, they were always a band that I really, really liked. And all of my live journal girlfriends loved them. And so it was a, this weird combination of like, I used liking dashboard in secret to simp for these girls, but then also like, didn't like that dashboard publicly because it was gay. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like very, very real. And like fans would almost be singing above Chris. Like it's, yeah. it's insane to think about. I don't even know if any band could elicit the type of the type of response because it and not only was it was going across gender lines because boys were yeah. just as devoted to this thing and it's pretty amazing that Chris was already like like my age like I'm 29 when this stuff was popping and, and able to reach people that were two times younger than him and be able to speak to these experiences that they they could connect with um and this is like really the start of it and someone that was like tirelessly touring and there's stories of nobody knew who he was when he opened for like saves the day or something and people would buy all of his shit after the show because they were just won over um yeah i'm gonna like go on a huge dashboard kick uh now I fucking I love this band. They're so fucking good. I think that they're like out of out of anything that we talk about, out of any of this like early two thousands pop punk and emo stuff. I think that they're a band that you could put in a time capsule. Like they're maybe not the most illustrative of what was going on, but they are the band that like I think is the most universally appealing out of any of this stuff. I think they're indicative. If I wanted to try to explain what third wave emo was, I feel like they're indicative of not only not necessarily the sound but of the culture and what was happening during during this time in the 2000s so i i i'd i'd agree with them as being a time capsule in a good way it's still i feel like you could still show it to someone today and they might be into it but i think it's very it's representative of the 2000s to me in a good way yeah 100 percent. it's one of the things that really really holds up um speed bagging these really quickly starting line and finch uh both put out eps in 2001 that were just sort of like poorly poorly executed appetizer courses for what wound up being like two of the best fucking albums on the label a year later um so they're not really worth going into in depth uh other than saying that like there is this really interesting trend that you touched on of like normally the first EP is like a band's most fire material. And it's really interesting how that dynamic was flipped on its head on this label. Um, uh, I, I just want to of- give out the, the starting line song leaving might be one of my favorite starting line songs. I just oh, yeah. wanted to say that real quick. So For like fucking some- sure. The, the, the goddamn, the version of it on uh the version of it on on say like you mean it is just better though um that being said a great ep that came out in 2001 was the movie life movie life has a gambling problem um i think this is on the s tier of drive-through releases i think it's the only ep that makes it onto the s tier i think it is also like a lot of days is my favorite movie life release and i don't know how hot of a take that is but I love this record. And I think that, again, the hardcore kid magic, very real here. Um, one of my 
favorite things in this whole zone of music. I know that parts of part of that is nostalgia bias because Hand Grenade made such an impact on me when I first heard it. Um, how do you feel about this one, Hugo? I'm curious. Uh, this time next year, or whatever that record's called, yep. um, is the one for me. You're in that is, camp. Okay. This is probably, yeah, that's just the one. This is, it's good. It's the movie life. Uh, I think this, it's more interesting to me because the movie life seems so out of step in like an interesting way that everything else that's happening on drive for obviously you have something like newfound glory but like this it feels like the movie life are like the old heads at the young kid party or something to me in a, in a way i don't know i i don't know why i feel that way but it feels like i i think it's partially because taking back sunday comes out with the record at this time and it seems like they're the kings of the of the Long Island pop punk emo thing yeah. right now. And the movie life seems like that the band that that all their fans are like they should have been bigger. Um, and it's I still I still love that that stuff, but it feels it feels like they they should have popped bigger than they did. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I I completely. I completely agree um, with that assessment. Like, I think that it's it's kind of wild that given how cult appreciated they are, that they didn't get bigger, especially because I think that so much of, like, pretty much they made three flawless records right in a row. Like, as we'll get into, like, I think that their LP on drive through is fucking sick. And for me, that's my go-to. Like, Movie life fandom is divided into two distinct camps of this time next year people and 40-hour train people. And I've always been more of a 40-hour train guy. Um, I do think it's like it's really interesting though, because like movie life are now getting talked about like really positively again because of bands like Koyo, like name checking them as influences. Um, and so that's that's a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing the nostalgia is always uh double-edged and sometimes when it's constructive yeah. it's good like if you allow like a timeline like i see them they're like if taking back sunday is like the poppiest thing there's a midpoint between silent majority and taking back sunday to me like that's that's that continuum that that they exist exist on like and it's part of that lineage that we're seeing, like you said, with Koyo, with Private Mind, with Standstill, who just announced they're putting out another EP soon, which I'm very excited about. And it's cool that they're on this label because Long Island is like super important to like what would become Pop Punk and Emo in the 2000s. Bingo. Um, cool. Let's see. Um, RX Bandits, Progress, I don't care. You yeah, we don't need to keep... We, yeah. we, we set our piece on RX. Yeah, we set, we set our piece on RX Bandits. Something Corporate. This is, this is a band. This is a band <laughs> that is worth talking about. Um, Audio Boxer 2001. Uh, I think this band is excellent. Uh, that, that, that may or may not come as a surprise. Um, I think this is a... Something Corporate where a band 
Um, sort of, I think, in the same flavor. I don't want to call them same flavor as Dashboard, but it's pop with some punk and emo aesthetics, right? Rather than like punk with a pop coat of paint. And I think it's an important distinction because like the reasons that a band like something corporate had such mass sort of crossover mainstream appeal and while while like the you know prehistoric chuggy girls with like the zangas loved shit like something corporate so much right it was because like it was fucking pop music and this was an era where like john mayer and shit was huge and so something like something corporate is really only like a short stone's throw away from that hugo how do you feel about this I feel pretty much like nothing about something, something corporate. Um, I think it's another one where it was just after it was before my time. I knew I knew of Jack's Mannequin during during that, which is the band that came after this. Um, it's fine, and your your point is definitely valid, but it's one of those where I was starting to feel uh, a little tired of the drive thing i think it's obviously big in a band that's obviously beloved and definitely coming from more of a pop sense pop sensibility but if i it's just one of those where i prefer what came after rather than before yeah totally i mean and i think that's completely fucking valid um yeah it's it very much is not something that i will like go out of my way to reach for but i'm also like gonna get pretty stoked if i if i get to listen to it so totally and, and it's nice to have things like that um now moving on this is this is a hot zone we're about to go into this is like banger city this is that from from where i sit from my lived experience of the label we're going into the peak of drive through right now um starting out with the starting line say it like you mean it in 2002 i think next to sticks and stones which we'll talk about in a minute here this is the best drive-through release it's a perfect record front to back it's flawless fucking pop punk it should be in the fucking smithsonian i don't know what else to say they're they're i i like newfound glory sticks and stones more than this newfound glories sticks and stones is objectively better than this but this is the record on this discography that like still elicits the strongest emotional reaction from me. And I think that counts for something. Um, there is no better, like there's no more complete encapsulation uh, of what it felt like to be a teenager in the two thousands than this record. Hugo. Uh, yeah, obviously I like the starting line. I think that's, I, I, I think indisputably this is one of their, crowning achievements it's um in a good way it's music made by and for high schoolers it's very much capturing that feeling but even as i listen to it it's just really expertly made pop pop songs um yeah uh yeah i don't i it's one of those records where it's just good there's you can try to intellectualize it you want but it is more like just from the gut it it just hits those pleasure centers and and yeah like it's the, the ep they did before was 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 good but this was definitely perfected and kind of keeps the the wheel moving 
for dry drive through and I think it's it's interesting to compare this and Newfound Glory because their starting point for how to use that line is a uh, is very different, and they're playing pop punk, but they're they're both choosing like a different avenue to do it, and it's kind of showing these two two different trajectories you can go. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself if I tried. <laughs> It's uh, incredible. Um, moving on to Midtown, Living Well is the Best Revenge. We're squarely in 2002 here. I think that this, more than any, more than anything else, is like if you distilled what it was like to be in 2002 into like its most concentrated and honest, like syrupy form. Uh, I think that this album like encompasses everything good and bad about the vibe of the year and sort of offers a really honest sort of like we always get really hagiographic and like rose tinted when we look back on a on a time but like i like this album because there are moments where it's like oh fuck yeah and there are moments where like well i wish that i didn't remember this aspect of 2002 like how fucking uh how fucking frosted tips annoying everybody was and just kind of has has it all um and I mean, it just made an undeniably big impact on me when I first heard it. Uh, like I said, really, really thorough capture of the vibe. Uh, curious to hear your thoughts on it, though. Um, I I kind of said my piece. Yeah. On, on Midtown already, there's a couple of, of these coming up where they already had records we talked about. But yeah, like, it's, it's, it's good for for what it is but um but yeah it's just stuff that missed me i don't really have that nostalgic lens to view this through just because i didn't hear this stuff during the time as i said like i was i was a little too young i was only like nine years old when this came out so i have like little to no i have no recollection of this happening because i didn't know what it was like uh to be uh, a teenager or whatever or a pre-teenager during this time yeah no it's like it's 100% something that I wouldn't give a shit about if it hadn't been for like my very specific time relationship with it um, like if this if this album hadn't hit when I was literally in middle school I don't think I would have any kind of like attachment to it at all um, more, more output from something corporate who were like a fucking train with no brakes at this point apparently um there were a lot of out fucking bands though like the the bonanza the money bonanza made a lot of bands in this you know broad punk emo hardcore post hardcore zone make albums in like really quick rapid fire succession weirdly successfully i think because a lot of this stuff bangs um that being said i think that this this is really, really sophisticated. Um, this record, Leaving Through the Window, I think is probably like the most, this side of Dashboard, the most like sophisticated pop thing that we've heard so far. Uh, Hugo, how you feel? Uh, I, I also just wanted to circle back to what you're saying about the records coming out in such quick succession, I think. That's also how records just used to be. Yeah. Back in the day, 
um, these album cycles that we do now, where it's every like four years, is um, even though it's more of the norm, it's it's not it's not really it's not really anymore. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I like I said, I I've I I already something corporate's fine. Like I don't I don't feel too strongly of, about about this stuff. Like I. I think I don't even have that same appreciation as I do for dashboard because I think dashboard was like something that was like inescapable for me even when I was coming into this like I knew who dashboard was because how could could you not like they did it on TV unplugged um yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah like it's it's fine for what it is it's another one I just don't have I don't remember listening to this during the time that the uh something corporate was a name like i always heard but just never bothered to listen to yeah no completely fair i also like think that they they were they were definitely a blind spot for me at the time they're just a band that i've like over time become you know a, a bigger appreciator of as i've become more of a poptimist of as i've gotten older oh. moving on now to the fucking P.S. de resistance of this whole label's catalog, Newfound Glory, Sticks and Stones. This is the best and most impactful drive-through release. This is also the best pop-punk record ever made. Undefeated. Um, This CD is on repeat in my car. This album has been on out of anything that's come out in the last 20 years, this album has stayed the most consistently in my rotation it is a perfect album um if you don't like newfound glory if you don't like this sound that's fine but if you like pop punk of this era hard to hard to offer any other goat goat candidate besides enema right it's like it's between this and enema of like best pop punk album of all time i think over to you yeah yeah that's that that tracks um the self-title is still my go-to new undeniable record yeah it's just there's so many like hit tracks on that one but the i think this is probably the record for them and most in most people um yeah like everything i said about newfound glory still rings rings true and it's 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 really amazing like just taking more of a big picture view it's really amazing all of the stuff that comes out this year that it's all back to back and like really solidifies like this label going forward the next couple of years as like a tastemaker like if you see that that logo you know it's going to be good yeah this is the tear. This is like the the acceleration. O2 is the acceleration event that like caused this label and this vibe to just imprint in a completely impossible to ignore way on culture. Um, staying in 2002, rounding out like the S tier shit was uh, Finch, What It Is to Burn. I don't have an accurate read on whether this record is rated or underrated it's certainly not overrated i think it's still underrated personally because i see the true heads shout out sal from koyo shitposting about this album pretty regularly um 
I know that for people who are from a time like me, um, sort of people born between 84 and 89, like this album is unbelievably impactful. Um, I think that this record was up against a tough crowd because this is the, like the most, this is the heaviest thing that we've seen on this label. Um, I think this is the heaviest thing we see on this label period. Um, certainly the heaviest thing so far. And it's very much in a flavor of, in a, in a zone of, that is like squarely post hardcore. Um, this band is like sonically sort of in a peer demographic with like Thursday, Glassjaw and Thrice, right? Like, and I do think that because this, this era was a height for all three of those other bands and those bands were, you know, vastly more popular. I do think that this record gets overshadowed, but this record is absurd and it is a perfect front back front to back record and has some of the, like, I think that the high points on this record are some of the highest in this whole era. And I think that they're some of the highest in the whole post hardcore genre. Uh, again, trying to, I try to put my bias on the shelf as much as possible, but like some of it is impossible to step outside of because this record was just like stupidly massive for me. Um, Hugo, what are your thoughts on this one? I don't think we've ever talked about this record. Yeah, um, I'm I'm interested by your under or properly rated. I guess underrated because I don't see. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. It's, a, I I know it more by the cover. Iconic cover. Like the cover is just yeah, it's more of what's in my head. A band that I never really listened to. Um, I thought that seeing Daryl from Glass on a couple tracks would be a turnoff for me even though there are times where it's like just emo glass jaw to my ears sometimes. Yeah. Um, emo glass jaw is something I can get with. Regular glass jaw I cannot as we've had this conversation because as we've said with glass jaw, it's all the vocals. And these vocals are, even though it's heavy and it obviously comes from a more hardcore lane, the, the vocals are still have that emo drawl that 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 brings me in um but i would say vocals are also the just just to interject the vocals on this record are weirdly butt rock in a way that like that that i think is like charming like there there's just something very specific about the way nate sings on this record that i don't think like we really hear anywhere else in this era of stuff besides maybe thrice yeah, there's a, but definitely more comes, more makes sense if you're talking about the post-hardcore of this time than necessarily the emo of of this time. Like, having this and something corporate, like, back-to-back is such a mind-bend. Wild. It feels like two entirely different worlds that I am listening to. Yeah. Um, we're skipping over homegrown because it's just now that we're having the conversation, it's just like, I don't think, unless you had anything to say about it, it's just not like on the same level as anything else. No, it was the one where it feels, it feels out of place just because yeah. of how, how much it's just nothing. And it's more, it's 
like you know it's like c or d tier of this stuff it's fine yeah. it just it just doesn't rise to the level of memorable yeah this isn't like one of those like some of the labels that we've talked about like the rising tide did raise all the ships and like the the people were like at the label were had such talent vision to where like literally like 80 to 85 percent of the stuff on the label in a given time is bangers right i think we've seen that a lot but this isn't one of those situations um <laughs> there's very specific highs on this um speaking of like stuff that's on squarely in the b tier alistair last step suburbia um listen the banger track on this is a, is a love letter to the fireside so because Al- alistair is a fucking chicago land band so i can't be mad about that um especially because like this was already the era where like the fireside of like peak fireside had started to tail off um but i still think that like I don't know the ch- at this point it's weird the chunky chunky skate shoes pop punk vibe had been like hijacked by newfound glory and taken and, and elevated to a completely new thing and so I think that bands like Alistair really kind of got left in the dust yeah it just feels it feels out of place even yeah. though just because of how fast things were moving for years is like a lifetime yeah. So, like, this makes much more sense, like, in 1999, but I feel like post-2000s pop punk, it feels out of out of place. Obviously, is notable because, as we saw before, Alistair makes, like, a huge kind of pivot. Um, and, like you said, somewhere on Fullerton, when I saw Newfound Glory, somewhere on Fullerton played over the PA, just, just for, like, a fun little aside. Um, so, yeah, it's... It's fun. It's crowd a fun song. Move. It's a crowd yeah. pleaser move. But like, you know, once again, it's just this stuff feels so marginal when you compare it to what's happening around. And it makes it makes sense that like there's gonna be some stuff that isn't isn't gonna isn't gonna stick. Yeah. No, for sure. Um rounding out 2002 early november for all of this i'm gonna kick this over to you um early november is a blind spot for me and they won't be after this exercise uh but i know that you have like a hella deep experience with this band so i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you talk about them a little bit um yeah early november like really really important band for me and i and I think the easiest pitch I could use is if you like Oso Oso, you should be listening to early November because I interviewed Jade and you know the move Oso Oso does where he puts an acoustic song at the end of his records. He stole that from early November. I talked to him about it. Um, If you listen to, I think it's, it's ever so sweet on the LP, but he he definitely takes it from that. I think this rises above the level of something like Alistair because I think there's just a lot of character here. And I think a big thing for me is there's just riffs, a lot of like memorable riffs. Sunday Drive, All, all We Needed um, is a great track. And this isn't even the, this is like them just starting off. And I think what really makes early November like, interesting is they're they're ambitious as hell as we'll get to as we'll get to later like and i think they they give uh 
they give the label like another life, especially heading into this later period where a lot of the stuff that's hitting is like the first, the continued returners records um, from bands um, like Newfound Glory and such. Um, yeah, I really, I really like this the CP, and if if you like any emo, I think it'll appeal to you. Yeah, uh, from what I've from from my cursory listens, that definitely seems like something that tracks. Um, that seems like a really fair assessment. Um, now moving into 03, something corporate north. All I'm going to say is, like I said before, this band had fucking hands. They were just going for it. Um, I think that this is kind of the first taste that we see of the sort of like stadium rockification of emo over the course of the 2000s. Like this sort of feels like a precursor to like starting line direction uh, vibes. Definitely a departure in terms of like it's still palpably emo, but has a kind of more deliberately big room kind of energy to it. Yeah, I don't have much. I have nothing to say on this. I've said love a love a fucking speed round um moving into what i what i think is we're starting to get into the point of the label where like the the bangers are becoming a little more widespread the output in general is kind of slowing down a little bit um just because of like a, a lot of the turmoil that we talked about at the top um that being said, one of the finest releases on this label, Movie Life, 40-Hour Train Back to Penn. I think one of the last episodes that, or one of the last records that really, like, is quintessential for the DTR sound. Um, and that might just be personal experience bias, but, like, this this shit is iconic, man. I listened to this record so much, Summer of 03. Um, like I said, like, I think that... I want to say it was Jamestown was on a comp that I heard at the skate park. And so I immediately like went out and bought the fucking CD. This was an era where you like had to like remember a a bar of lyrics and then go home and fucking Yahoo or Alta Vista search a that bar of lyrics and find the song that way, which is a tactic that I still use occasionally. And then you could like figure out, you know the band and the album and then go to the fucking record store and buy it um this is a lot of people's favorite movie life record including my including mine and i think that this is the first time that we see like a proper sequel in terms of like being like a really loyal being really loyal to the sound that we heard on sound the sound majority lp like the spectator right like Sure, Taking Back Sunday was like leaps and bounds more impactful and they like did such a good update of that sound, but this album is kind of nice because it is more of like a direct love letter to that record. Thoughts? I totally get what you mean. It's obviously much more, there's much more of a straight line where Taking Back Sunday, there's hints of it, but it's not. Taking Back Sunday is like it's it's a completely its own thing it's 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 almost yeah i don't it's almost not even comparable to silent majority it's just that the lineage is there because they're from long island uh yeah the the movie life this is not like i said before this is not the record for me 
but it is probably their most important one, given that it is on dry fruit, even though they did break up like pretty shortly after this this came out. Yeah. Um yeah, and obviously they they have you know been in and out of the retcon, and obviously a couple of years later we see Vinny C start this the project that I think has has become way more popular in a specific way, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to talk. I want to. I want to pass the peanut over to you to talk about the early November. The room's too cold. Uh, probably my favorite. It's got all of their all their hits. Ever so sweet is one of my favorite tracks. Just such such a cool way to open the album. Baby Blue is great. Sesame Sesame. Fluxy is like one of the first. I remember pulling that up, the opening riff on Ultimate Guitar Tab to, to learn it. Didn't understand what a half step down was. So, and Drop D. So I just, I butchered that song. Um, and yeah, it's it's great. Like I, I said, I said my piece. I think, I think they're, I, I think they're a, I think they're like a forgotten gem because they didn't reach these same heights as like some of these other other bands, but I think the the quality is still there. Like I saw them play a reunion show at Metro, so like they're they're bel- they're beloved, but I think like to the same point as like a movie. Like I think I think they could have. They could have gotten bigger, and I think it's because, as we'll get to with their last record, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. And this is during a time where I heard them on, they were on, like, 101.9 Q101, like, two of our radio stations in Chicago. Like, this is during the time where this stuff can get, like, airplay, and it's, um, yeah, this is a, this is a, a cool record, even. And with some weird stuff, there's, like, an eight-minute song at the end. That's just, it's like, it's like, like, you know, I like homegrown's cool, but they're not putting an eight minute song at the end. Like it's, it's stuff like that, that tells me like, okay, we're trying to like reach a little bit beyond what's typically prescribed in a pop punk or emo band. Perfect. Now, um, Moving on to what might be the most graceful follow-up effort any band's ever done, Newfound Glory, Catalyst, 2004. Um, I don't know how. I don't know how you fucking don't write Sticks and Stones. And, well, I know why. It's because the economics of it all. But, like, to write Sticks and Stones and then to write a a follow-up to it that is this good and that, like, makes this much of an impact, it's fucking nuts. Um... The high points on this record might even be higher than on than the high points on Sticks and Stones. I think that all downhill from here, it's like the most probably the most masterfully written pop punk song ever. Um, fucking, when I was listening to this record this time around, I was I was hearing a lot of fucking parallels between this and Turnstile Glow On, like, and I'll elaborate on that. And what I mean is that they are, they have shifted at this point and they're 
firmly in the pop music writing paradigm and then they are just swooping in to um the genre that they came from and borrowing all the stuff that makes it legibly that genre but they're full send writing pop songs and i think that that's like a beautiful thing to do and it's like a huge flex to show that you like fully crossed over i don't know what you think about that but that was like a really interesting thing that it yeah. like took hearing took hearing glow on to to make me realize that yeah i guess i need to spend more time with this one because it's i'm pretty firmly like a, you know the the last two records we talked about are the two newfound glory ones i know i i haven't really dove all the way deep in into their catalog just because they made like two pretty great records and it's, it's all i all i need but it's it's cool that they they stuck with drive through for this long if for like three records that's that's cool i feel like they probably got offers to like jump ship or something yeah. um and it's cool that they that they wrap them this hard absolutely um again moving into 05 pretty quick succession of years now now that the like super heavy pith of the label is over um finch say hello to sunshine i think that this record is partially underrated even in terms of finch just because of how impactful and iconic what it is to burn was but this record was a huge departure from that record sonically i think that finch are like they're they're a they're a post-hardcore band and so they're gonna make post-hardcore records and i think it's really interesting how on this record kind of went in it sort of bifurcated its sound and like out of one year i'm hearing a lot of like fucking i'm hearing a lot of like walter schreifel's worship i'm hearing kind of like a lot of quicksand and like that style but i'm also hearing the direction that post-hardcore was starting to go at this time which is like bear versus shark minus the bear some other band with fucking bear in the name um like this i hadn't really realized how much this record becomes like very experimental and like this is weirdly like just like it almost sounds like mars volta at points like this is like a fucking music heads album and I think that's why like music heads tend to like this album a lot, especially in comparison to what it is to burn. Um, that's the, I think it's a fraction of the album that what it is to burn was because that album is like insane, but it's a good record. And like, if you haven't given it time, you might find some, some gems in it that you like. Hugo. Yeah. I didn't even, I only really knew what it is to burn. I didn't even know before those any, any other, finch record um i really can barely i i listened to like the one track on the boys i can barely even remember this one if i'm if i'm being honest it must have i don't know is it must not have been like super memor memorable and as you're talking like the leaning more into the walter schreifel's post hardcore thing it doesn't really sound like my thing so yeah, yeah it would make... <laughs> i feel like every other episode i'm talking about how much i don't like quicksand yeah it's uh it's it's one it's a wonderful world where reasonable people can disagree on things um uh staying in 2005 the starting line based on a true story 
it's not the not the flawless front to back record that say it like you mean it was because really nothing can be um but a really formidable follow-up and i do think the tracks on this one are fucking tracks like i think that it's interesting to sort of see the like intra label and sort of maybe intra genre like creative aping going on because like this album has way more like dashboard fucking something corporate energy than say it like you mean it which probably has to do with the fact that these fellows are like in their early 20s at this point and are you know maybe maturing a little bit but um it's not like they you know the kind of identity crisis that you hear finch having on their record um I think that the high points on this album are really high. Like there's still tracks that when I'm in tracks mode, I, I seek out above anything on um, or above a lot of stuff on uh, say it like you mean it particularly yeah. like surprise, surprise is one of the strongest tracks I've ever written. Yeah. And I think the point that they were literally children when they were like, the singer was like 14 or something when they started this band. So yeah, they were they were literally like when they when they recorded say like you mean it Kenny was 17. So Yeah, and it's, that age is like you know, the time between 17 and 21 or something your your taste changes like wildly. So yeah. I can imagine that it's the the growth you're hearing is it's just because they they changed a little bit and you can't write say it like you mean it like again like there's no way you're gonna you're gonna top that so i think it's a smart move to like do something that's that's a that's a little different and yeah like as as we're seeing with all of these like there there's there's room to grow and do different stuff and i think this record's indicative of that of looking for a little bit of a change totally um do you have anything to say about hidden in plain view uh not really it's kind of okay, it's either. not it's not great ted pick me energy i don't know that's like <laughs> like a lot of more marginal stuff on this label it just had giant pick me vibes um now you did mention socratic so i want to let you talk about socratic yeah this was another early one for me probably just uh, an important like important drive through band for me i think I, I i think similar to early november i think they get they might get lost in the shuffle and i think i i think the reason i like this so much is i love a piano and pop punk for some reason same it's it's, it's same, just so dude. it's so fun and and jaunty lunch to the sky is a great track they would they would kind of leave the sound behind another new jersey band i just wanted to give them a quick shout out because they're definitely not remembered at all but i think compared to something like hidden in plain view there's like a lot of character here and i think that's the big thing i'm looking for is like just give i, I want to get a sense of like your personality or or like your taste a little bit more than than some of this other like C or D tier stuff gives me. Totally. Um, the I Am the Avalanche first record self-titled in 05. God, this record fucking rules, man. I don't know what I what I what it is, but I love I Am the Avalanche. And I think okay. that they have a pretty flawless discography. Like they they do a, they're doing a very specific thing. You know, it's like party rock anthems for fucking old punk dudes. Um, 
but I think that it executes very well on what it is. And I am always pleasantly surprised at how well the, this record holds up. It's interesting because they made this record and they didn't make another one for six years. Um, but I think this is, this is good. I, I, how do you feel about this? Uh, I don't really have any particularly strong feelings. This one must have, this, this is like during the time I was getting into stuff, but maybe it just struck me as old during, during the time. Uh, I don't have any particular strong feelings on this. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's completely fine. Oh yeah. I'm going to like put you in front of the fucking firing squad because you don't have strong feelings about a record, Hugo. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's what we do um, here on Watch Me Pod. We we flail people for not having opinions. We're a, we're a firing squad kind of fucking band. Um, no, that's that's totally totally chill. I completely get it. Um, but yeah, if you're one of those people who like thinks that Avalanche United is the high point of their discography, you're right because it is because that album's fucking great. But this this album's pretty good too. So maybe go back and give it a look-see. Um, Alistair, Before the Blackout. I actually think this is the strongest Alistair material because I think that like not being not being confined to this sort of like um, chunky skate shoes zeitgeist uh, allowed them to like maybe get a little more polished and serious with their sound. Again, talking about just age maturity too that no doubt factors in. It's like a decent amount of talent hiding behind the giant dicky shorts though. Um, I think, and I was weirdly surprised by how much this album hit for me. I didn't know what to think because I was going into it completely blind. Last Stop Suburbia was previously where this band kind of stopped and ended for me prior to this exercise. So that's that's tight. Yeah. Um, early November, the 2006 album Mother Mechanic in the Past. I really like this. Uh, I know that you have feelings on it, but uh, for me, this is just like. This is sort of like the the micro genre of emo from this era that I I have a, a weird soft spot for. Like this this is giving giant like cartel acceptance Emery vibes for me, and stuff like that is like particularly that acceptance two thousand five record is just like Chef's Kiss. There's just something about like the way it's just kind of like a little bit more mature, sophisticated vibes that i really really enjoy but um i'm gonna kick it over to you because you actually have depth in this band yeah this so this was actually my introduction to the band and i think some of their best songs are on here yeah but they got in their own way because ace Anders, the singer he has he has a lot of ambition and bombast and for people who don't know this is a triple album and there's there's a whole concept behind it about the mother the mechanic and the path and each and the last one is this fake interview where it's about a somebody a, a kid who is abandoned by by their parents and is the person that's interviewing them is is the son and they don't the person that's answering the questions about some doesn't know that and i i'm having trouble remembering all of it but there's one that's one side that's just straight rippers but i wouldn't recommend the list this isn't an album you listen to all the way through i didn't even as a 
I might have as a kid because it's like two hours long, but decoration, hair, a little more time are some of the standout tracks. But I think this is what I meant. This this basically signaled the end of the band. They even made a documentary alongside it that came with the CD and there was some turmoil. This is like the the way I would sell sell this is like this is pop punk's version of um of i can't remember the loco the loco record right now but it's but it's got like that kind of kind of ambition and that it basically tore tore apart yankee hotel foxtrot it's their yankee hotel foxtrot in terms of that there was a level of ambition betting on themselves and it basically tore the band apart and ace would very he had a couple other things he had his hands in and would keep writing music but um basically signaled the end the end of the band but i think it's it's like they're not it's their best songs but as a piece if you're not into the concept album thing it might not totally work as a full package yeah, no, I think that's, I think that it's always important if you're an artist to check yourself and not get in your own way in terms of like having really, really outsized ambitions and like letting the grandiosity of your vision um, take the driver's seat. Because then what ends up happening is like, if what, if that thing bricks, then you're just like, then you're just rat fucked, right? And yeah. that's always and, like that. It, it didn't like totally brick, but I think, like, I, I think it did maybe stop some of their momentum just because of how much of an arduous process it was to put together. And because it's a lot of, it's like a lot of songs, like in, in total, we're talking 46, 46 songs, including, and it's, it's probably closer to like 25 if you take out um disc free yeah it's kind of a lot kind of a lot of <laughs> um, it's uh too rich for my blood i'll say that much um yeah but i would recommend like checking out like disc one and two if you have if you have t- if you have time because there's some really good stuff on there duly fucking noted um moving on to the last one in the line here Hello, goodbye. Um, the listen, I, I never thought that I would get to use the iconic master shake line, but I am going to say I am 30 or 40 year, years old and I do not need this. Um, I'm, I'm gonna kick it over to you because I know that this this band actually hit for you and I wanna like I wanna hold space for that as opposed to me just like no go. I wanna hear I wanna hear it first. Let's go. I just I just don't this 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 is this the ship had sailed for me. And this is just so part and parcel of an era of uh, of emo that I have no relationship with at all. And this is just this is exclusively the age difference between us talking because this the, the sort of neon era of emo would like hit at the exact right time for you. But by the time that stuff hit, I was already like blasting cigs and listening to fucking Jawbreaker, right? So like. I was already so jaded and beyond that. I just never developed a relationship with any of that stuff. So like, I, that, there's no, 
there's no lying nostalgic because nostalgia isn't isn't telling me anything at all I, I was checked out the only album that came out in 2006 that i listened to at the time was fucking oh calcutta <laughs> very different vibe than this. yeah the funny thing is when the neon thing happened that's when i stopped listening to emo music and i interesting and i and i started because i started high school in 2008 and got into like started going on that piff and started listening to rap and like classic rock and bought a turntable and listened to the wall by pink floyd and hell the yeah and hell the yeah Beatles brother and just went a totally opposite way i was into this was another pure volume band where i was into shimmy shimmy quarter turn which was an ep they had in 2005 and like that a lot there's and it's not particularly anything great i think the main thing is it had since and i was really into motion city soundtrack so i was really into that like emo band with like some with some synth guitar um synthesizers and i was just like hell yeah and this record zombies aliens vamp vampires dinosaurs came out and i was like what the fuck are they doing why why is this like totally 80s like rock or whatever and just 80s core and it's and it, it it definitely signaled to me like the end of something i remember seeing at this warp tour like metro state metro station and stuff around this time and re and realizing i wasn't real i it, it's weird to be 14 and feeling too old for this <laughs> yeah that's that's how i felt at the time and i don't even really like i tried to re-listen to this stuff this hello goodbye stuff and it's still it still doesn't totally work i think the auto-tune kind of thing on the vocals threw me off but i feel like it's a very sharp line in the sand and makes sense why drive through couldn't have existed any longer because i don't because emo was going and pop punk was going a specific way right yeah. right now right then so and it would it would take a little bit more to find its footing and i think it's very it's interesting that like 2006 you're starting you're gonna start to get the inklings of the fourth wave emo stuff that's a very obvious response to stuff like this yeah that's true kind of bringing it back full circle with some shit that we talked about way earlier on, uh, which I do want to just have, do an episode at some point where we just full on talk about the fourth wave. Um, Cause that shit is cool as fuck. Yeah. And yeah. we end up dancing around it as it is anyway, given our age. Yeah, for sure. In fact, we'll do that. Soon. We'll do that sooner rather than later, honestly. Um, might as well, but yeah, um, this we're, we're at the end of the line here. And, you know, I think that it's a, they're definitely a label that burned out, but certainly a label that didn't fade away, like in their time, uh, in their time as like at the sort of top of the food chain, like they really did make a huge impact. I think that it was a right place, right time thing where like, I don't think that they had nearly as, uh, judicious a nose for talent as let's say somebody like josh truskill or tony victory did 
because their batting average was just so much lower. But I think the um, their wins were really, really outsized. And the bands that that they signed that ended up making really, really good stuff, that was coupled with the sort of market power that the label had. And again, they were able to just kind of brute force the the label into the market through CD sales at a time where that that metric really was the king shit metric. And so I think by 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 dint of that, like it's undeniable that when you look at this era of pop punk and emo, like drive through is one of the main names. And I think that if for some reason, like even if you just look at 2002 drive through like even if you just go through the 2002 releases like it's impossible to have a a a good inventory of pop punk and emo in its current state without like knowing without knowing that era and at least you know giving some cursory listens to to those those few albums uh final thoughts from you hugo no, I I kind of said my piece of the hello goodbye thing. It's yeah. it's just they had a very short span, but it was very impactful and it make and so much so that people are excited about these drive through coming back with these reissues or whatever. Mm-hmm. That people still have a soft spot for this label. Yeah, it's really really cool. Um, a big reason that we're doing this episode is because you know, they're on the, the sort of 20 year anniversary of their peak year, uh, drive through is doing this set of reissues. Um, you've probably seen chatter about that, but, um, if you're a drive through nostalgia head, like I am, especially for this, for that, that O2 era, definitely look into what your options are in terms of picking up some, picking up some limited edition physical stuff. Um, as always, want to thank you for sticking with us and, and rocking with us. Uh, and as usual, we, we hope that you're able to use this episode as a, as a springboard for, you know, maybe developing a richer appreciation or any kind of appreciation at all for, for the drive through catalog. Uh, obviously going to put a companion playlist in the episode notes. Um, but thanks for, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, being your beautiful selves and keep keep on rocking peace y'all